A reading from Matthew 6, 5 through 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. It's great to be with you this morning. Let me um, just, month of prayer or not, let me open in prayer. We need him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, your grace and your son Jesus in the gospel. Thank you for the ability to come into your presence, not only humbly um, because you did die, Jesus, but um, boldly because, um, and you, well, you had to. And you, and you did. So we come now. We ask for your presence. We ask for uh, your guidance. We ask for your spirit. Be with us. We need you, Lord. Amen. I'm just going to move over a bit. Okay, we've been engaging in prayer because prayer is just difficult. Most people struggle doing it. Most people don't do it a lot. If, um, if you're like me, you've tried different kinds of ways to remember how to pray and even how to do it. And so it's tough. Uh, and what is prayer anyway? What is it? And is it something to be done only together in church on Sundays? Is it something that you only do on your own? How do you actually do it? Do you begin, as some of the great world religions do, empty yourself and meditate? Do you recite something you memorized when you were young? going to church. And even Jesus' disciples wanted to know in, in the, this version, in the version of this story in Luke, this account in Luke, uh, the disciples ask, hey, teach us how to pray, Jesus. And so he, he throws this out at them. Uh, in our passage this morning, Jesus teaches not only what prayer is, but how to do it. And he teaches us this. This is the basic premise that we're going to be working with that I think he wants us to know. He teaches that prayer is asking for what God knows you need. Prayer is asking for what, you, for what God knows you need. Now, what should be done about that? What should be done about Jesus' teaching? And so we'll look at two things. It's really going to be three, but the two need to be compressed in one because there's so much here that I could only do two. I can only give you two this morning, so we'll do two points, sort of. We'll look at two things. Uh, what prayer is not, and by contrast, what it is. What prayer is not, and by contrast, what it is. And then we're going to spend time just unpacking the prayer itself, how to do it. Jesus sets that up as a model for us. Okay? So those two things. First, what prayer is not, and by contrast, what it is. What it's not. 
It's not hypocrisy or emptiness. Prayer is not hypocrisy or emptiness. Look at verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Or verse 7, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases. God is not someone you have to or can even relate to by the merit of your effort. Now look, back, uh, it's not printed here, but just a little bit earlier before this, in Matthew 6, 1, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people to be seen by them. And then in, in verse 5, he picks that same theme up, and he says, you must not be like these hypocrites. Now, who's Jesus addressing? And this is profound, especially if you've grown up with a Christian background, and, and you have a certain idea of what you think Christianity is. This is important that you hear this. And Jesus is going to step on your toes here. He's going to step on another group of people's toes in a minute. He's going to step on your toes now, especially if you've grown up in the context of the church. Jesus addresses the conservative hypocrites. Conservative hypocrites. They're praying in synagogues. They're at the street corners. They're doing their prayer. But he says they're doing it so they might be seen by others. Now, listen for a second. They were conservative. The people, the first group of people that Jesus is talking to, they were conservative in the sense that they knew that people couldn't approach God in any way. They had God's word. They had the promises. They were stewards of those things. And the way you approached God was important. You couldn't just approach him any way you wanted to. God had said so, and he had demonstrated so time after time again. But they had lost sight of the reason that they could approach God. They were able to approach God because God not only approached them first, but he had rescued them as a father would rescue a son. Think back to Exodus 4. Exodus 4, verse 22. Moses is, uh, God is talking to Moses. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, about this whole rescue operation that I have going on, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel, is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. Profound, right? This is before Israel has any code of law, any code of morality, any code of obedience they need to obey. They only have the promises of God. And here they have God's promise to deliver. Relationship didn't flow out of serving God. Serving God flows out of his relationship with them. That's important. Why would a relationship with God go well? Not because of their effort, but because of God's mercy and God's grace. One of the things that we recite during the Lord's Supper is about the Passover, where they had to put the blood of the lamb on their door, and they had to eat this meal, and and the Lord's judgment would pass over them, and it would not touch them, and it would not harm them. And so we say at the Lord's table, so Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. We'll get to that in a few moments. And yet the conservative hypocrites pointed to their own effort. Their own effort is the reason they and others' relationship with God would go well. They're saying something like this by their actions. The way you relate to God, everyone, watch me pray in the synagogue. Watch me pray on the street corners. Watch me. Watch me. This is how to have a good relationship with God. Watch me. All the while, what's the hypocrisy about? All the while, the relationship with God is not going well. It's not going well. Jesus says so again and again. You're like whitewashed tombs, he says. You clean the inside of the, you clean things, and, and they're inside full of nastiness and death. 
And so it was hypocritical. Why wasn't it well? Self-effort. Self-effort. They were doing self-effort in front of others so that the others would see it and do it too. And their religious customs, seen by others but not done by them. You see this all throughout the New Testament. Paul particularly comes against this sort of conservative hypocrisy. He says in, um, in Romans 2, you who judge do the same things. Powerful. He's talking to people who are religiously conservative. You who judge do the same thing. And Peter pulling back from the Judaizers describing Galatians 2, Paul dresses him to his face and says, look, you're a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile. You're eating sushi. (laughs) And you're living like a Gentile and then you're trying when the Judaizers come into our midst to force Gentiles to live like Jews. What's going on with you? There's hypocrisy there. There's hypocrisy. Jesus teaches not to pray in that way. Don't pray in that way, he says. Don't pray because you think that out of your effort and prayer will flow a right relationship with God. Jesus teaches that God's right relationship with you as Father will be what your prayer flows out of. Pray like that. To do otherwise makes you a hypocrite. Okay? So prayer is not hypocritical. It's not hypocritical. But Jesus here also addresses and steps on the toe of another group of people. There's a liberal emptiness that is devoid of supernatural power and celebrates humanity too much, too much. And so there's a heaping up of empty phrases that Jesus talks about, thinking that they will be heard for their many words. It gives too high of human achievement and capacity apart from who God is. And that's key to getting this, all right? Question, why were the empty phrases and many words not something that would be heard by God? Why were the empty phrases and the many words heaped up on one another not something that would be heard by God? It's the same reason as with the conservative hypocrites. God doesn't hear us through our self-effort. The way God will hear me, in other words, know my needs, is if I'm eloquent enough, this group was saying. Look, you see a group like it in, in Acts. Um, Paul in Athens is, uh, meets a group of people, and it says this. Luke describes them this way in his book of Acts. He says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. Ideas were great. Let me hear about that. Let me hear about this new idea about what? God come, and he's fully God and fully man, and he died, and he ra- What's going on? Tell me about that. Jesus is in your place? They like the new idea, but it was the ideas, it was the capacity of mankind for ideas that fascinated them. It wasn't relationship with God themselves. And so they ruled out supernatural. It must be through my effort. It must be through the many words. It must be through my cleverness and my many ideas and my many words that God will hear me. It must be through those things, right? Look, Jesus challenged as he, as he steps on your toes to get your attention, if you're like that, whatever your acumen, Whatever your acumen, God does not hear you because of it. Do you hear that? You can stack whatever you've learned as high as you want. You can stack it on top of each other. You're learning the methods by which you learn, the rules you use, and your disciplines. All of it will not be the thing that communicates your need to God. It just won't. If the focus is on your ability to make yourself known, look at it. There's no supernatural element 
There's only your effort. Jesus says that your father knows what you need before you ask. How is that possible? That's a supernatural element. There's something. There's someone so much more profound at work than all the skill that you acquired and all the rules that you use in your discipline, whatever it is, in your area of focus, to pray as though that that someone more profound is not true, is to pray with emptiness. Emptiness. So prayer is not hypocrisy. Prayer is not emptiness. God is not someone you have to or even can relate to by the merit of your own effort. Let me put it this way. It's the difference between the rules of a job and the intimacy of relationship between a parent and child. Between the rules of a job and the intimacy of relationship between a parent and a child. The rule of President Obama's job, for example, means that not just anybody can see him. Not just anybody can see him. And I'm not sure who in his job would actually have access to him to wake him up when he's sleeping in the middle of night, but I would venture to guess that the number of people who could actually do that is very, very small. Maybe even just one? Not just anybody from the president's workplace can wake up the president in the middle of the night. The rules of his job have certain boundaries because of the importance of who he is and what he does. Do you approach God like that? Do you think of the boundaries of who he is and what he does and that you can't approach him? Now think about the president's daughter, Malia and Sasha, and you begin to see a change. The rules are changed. Malia and Sasha don't have the same boundaries in place for their relationship with the president as those who relate to him in his job. Why? Because they're his daughters. The relationship is intimate, and it's always there. And they don't have to book an appointment with him. And they can wake him up in the middle of the night if they need him. And they don't have to try to get an audience with him based upon the merit of their effort. They're his. And he is theirs. Now, if that's true of a relationship with a human family, how much more true is it when you enter God's family through the good news of Jesus' work on your behalf? Hmm? How much more true? Prayer is not hypocrisy or emptiness. It's so much more. Real prayer begins when God is your Father who knows what you need before you ask. That's what Jesus lays down for us here. It's powerful. And it steps on your toes no matter where you're at and how you come at it. So, what prayer is not, and by contrast, what it is, but practically, let's unpack this, okay? How to do it. Praying with God as your Father, knowing what you need What does God know that you need? What does he know? And what does it mean to pray in a way that flows from that? Now, we're going to spend some time, and we're going to just briefly look at each of these things, but I'm going to say them for you now. If you want to write them down, I'll say them slowly. I'm going to take a drink of water. I'll come back. I'll say them again. And you can follow along. I think it's a helpful way into, some of, for some of you, what has just been a rote thing that you memorized when you were young, and you're not sure of what it means, and you're not sure of how to approach God with it. And so we're going to try to help with that. Okay, here, here are the, here's the different way of putting it. According to Jesus, God knows you need these things, right? His adoption. His security and permanence. 
his purpose, his good governance, his flourishing in your work, his provision, his grace to be forgiven and to forgive, his personal holiness, and his deliverance. I'm going to get a drink. I'll come back. I'll read those again and we'll we'll unpack them. Okay, if you missed it the first time. According to Jesus, God knows you need his adoption, his security and permanence, his purpose, his good governance, his flourishing in your work his provision, the grace to be forgiven and to forgive, his personal holiness in your own life, and his deliverance. Let's look. Verses 9 through 13, the Lord's Prayer, as it's affectionately called, is a model for how to pray with God as our Father, knowing what we need. Knowing what you need before you ask. So what do you need? First things first, God as your Father. You need God as your Father. Adoption. God wants us to draw near as children to a father, ready and willing to help us. So Jesus is teaching us that if we're not approaching God as our father through what he's done, then we're not, we're empty. Our prayers will be empty and our prayers will be hypocritical. So that's the first thing that you need. You need to approach God as your father, ready and willing to help you. And look at the word, our, our father. That also indicates that you need to be, pray with together, as we did today, and you need to pray for others. It's not just you as an individual going into God's presence, that he's calling a people, and we have relationship to one another. These letters that we read here in church were written for the context of being read in church, just like this, to a group of people. So often, the yous are not referring to an individual, but to a group of people. They're plural. And so we have the same thing here. Uh, Do you pray... To God, as a child does to a father who's ready and willing to help them. You know, we had the Praying Life Seminar uh, this past Wednesday, and it was, it was powerful. And Paul Miller um, had written a book called The Praying Life, and he was able to speak to us and give us a, a really compressed version of uh, what he was getting across there. And one of the exercises that he did was, um, I'm going to sort of do in short form with you now, And it was such a different way to approach God, right? So what I want you to do is I'm going to ask you to, in a minute, to close your eyes just for a few moments. And I want you to let your mind wander to whatever comes into it naturally. What are you concerned about? What's on your mind? What are you thinking about? And as each of those things flood into your mind and you know that it's there and you feel the weight of it, one of the things I want want you to do is just speak to God. Say, Father, this is concerning me. Would you come into this? Oh, there's another one. Would you come into that? And the problem is, is that there's, uh, Miller said that there's a tendency when things are hard that come into our mind, they're difficult, they're unbelieving even, they're rough. He says, think about children. You know, I have children, and I can tell you that they feel access to me to talk to me at almost any moment about almost anything. And sometimes it's, it's a lot, but as their dad, I just... You know, I, I want to listen. I want to. I want to pay attention. I want to be there as best I can, right? And especially when they were little, 
blah, blah, blah. You know, there's not a lot going on, but they want to communicate and they want to tell you about it. And Ezra started telling stories about characters that he was devising when he was young. And I've heard stories about those characters for years and years and years and years and years and years and years. And it's morphing, and they're becoming really creative stories. And I think that, you know, probably go on to write in some capacity the way that he creates characters and storylines and has them fit together. You know, he's got the equivalent of a whole Marvel universe, but in his own kind of way. It's wonderful, and I want to listen to that. But he also tells me about the things he's concerned about at school, and the things he's concerned about at home, and the things he's concerned about in ways I'm afraid about, angry about, upset about. He doesn't hide those. There's good communication there. Is your prayer life the same way? So try it. Try Paul Miller's exercise where you close your eyes and let your mind flood with all the things that are concerning you. But as you get flooded, make sure that you're inviting God into that. Father, Daddy, here it is. Here are the things. Would you come into this and would you transform it? Be here with me in these things as they come. Ready? Just a few moments. Close your eyes. Flood your mind. Invite your Father. Amen. It's inviting, at least I hope it was, that wherever you're at, you don't have to have pretense, you don't have to put on airs as though you have to pray in a certain way and heap up words on one another. You go to him because he has identified himself in the gospel through what Jesus has done as now being your father if you believe in that. And you can go to him like a child would, a parent, So God is your father, adoption. Jesus says you also need God in heaven, your security, your permanence. Draw near to God with a holy reverence. What does it mean to have reverence? It means to revere, right? Revere in a way that is set aside, distinct from anything else that you revere in all creation. Draw near to God with holy reverence, confidence. Your confidence is that heaven is lasting and permanent, not temporary and provisional. In the Bible, just by way of note, there's always a difference between heavens, the skies, and heaven, God's dwelling place. So don't get that confused when you start to think about this. And what this means in the security and permanence that you need is that, that God is distinct from creation, from all of creation. He's distinct, including the laws of physics, the laws of logic. He's distinct. Those are part of the created order. He's distinct from that as the creator. He's not part of everything that was created. He's distinct from it. And yet he reveals himself in it. And so the final appeal of authority is always to him. You know that if you've been in any kind of discipline of thought in the academy, that there's always a circularity when it comes to what your final appeal is. If you're an empiricist and you're a scientist and empirical uh, data is your court of appeal, there's always circularity of reasoning back to that. Well, how do you know? Because empirically I can verify it. If you're an existentialist philosopher, internal criteria are the, are the, the, is the criteria that you use and appeal back to to know if things are right or not. All of those things, Jesus says, are created things. 
And God is distinct from that, and he's over them, and he's the final court of appeal. Uh, It's a little bit like Samwise and Frodo as the mountains being destroyed, you know, and, uh, and they're in Mordor, and it looks like the world is ending. And the clouds part for just a moment, and they see something that has been so pure and untouched, light in the heavens, they see something that's so pure and untouched by all that's gone around them that they took hope for a moment. That what you see and the decay that you see is not the lasting stuff. It's not the stuff that will bring you through. There is a permanence for which you were made that is not temporary and provisional, and you will be ushered into that one day. But he also talks about, Jesus also says, you need God's name being hallowed. Purpose. Purpose. And that means attributing to God what he's worth. Glorify him. Through whatever means he makes himself known. And you pray that he would dispose everything that is to the same thing. That would be able to attribute to him what he's worth. You know, uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a Presbyterian pastor down at 10th Presbyterian Church for years. Before James Boyce. Before uh, Reverend Gallagher. And so he's, he was famous for his illustrations. Why? Because at some point, he writes about this. He wrote about it. He said, at some point, I realized that every single truth that we can observe and see and and taste and touch and deal with is God's truth. Because he's the author of truth. And it points back to him. And so he would use um, illustrations that I've used here for you. It would be illustrations like, you know, um, looking through a stained glass window on a church. When you look through that window, uh, what you see outside is colored by the the stained glass in a way that is not colored when you're not looking through that glass, when you're just looking at reality without it, right? And he would go on to say, in the same way, when you look at life through the gospel, there's a particular shaping that goes on that is necessary for your life. You see what he did? He took a truth, and he showed God's truth through it. And he felt the freedom to do that because he knew that all truth is God's. So God's name being hallowed has purpose. What's your purpose? What's the purpose of all truth? You're going to pray that everything glorifies in the way that it is meant to. God's kingdom coming. God's governance. His wise and good governance. What does this mean? It means the destruction of Satan's kingdom. Things are not right. You know that. You've sweat under that. You've bled under that. You know that they're not right. And there is an evil one. And he prowls around like a roaring lion, Jesus says, to devour you. Does that scare you? Jesus says that he's overcome that one. And that in, the, in the, his work on the cross, that he's won a major victory on your behalf. And the final, the final showing of that victory will come one day when he comes back. And he wipes away the tears that you feel and cry and wrestle with. And he makes all things right. And he makes the special offering that we have to send out, and what happened to cause us to send it out. He'll make those things right. His kingdom is coming. The destruction of Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of grace is advanced with ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it. There's an amazing place where Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my bringing you in and keeping you in. That's a powerful promise. And we're to pray that the kingdom of grace may come quickly. Bring the kingdom of grace, Lord Jesus. And we participate with him as he does it. You know, it's, it's funny. I was thinking the same thing that Dave was thinking as he led us into worship. He talked about the last battle, Lewis's book. And he talked about just when you thought you would get to one layer of understanding, experiencing all of the goodness God has for you, you went higher up and deeper in. 
It's a powerful story because the, the way that the story works is that the evil is so pressing and so insidious and there doesn't seem like any way out. In the end, it's as simple as going through the door and being delivered and all things falling away. It's a lot like in the, in the actual book itself, uh, the last Harry Potter thing. It's very anticlimactic. In, in the end, Harry just... He lets him have it. He lets him have his way. He lets Voldemort have what he wants. And it implodes in on himself. Voldemort can't handle what he wants. And it crushes him. And that's the way the gospel works. The kingdom is coming. And as Luther says in his great hymn, one little word shall fell him. Amazing. So those are things that we need. What else do we need? We need God's will being done on earth as God's will is done in heaven, flourishing in your work through God's will. What? What does that mean? What does God's have to, will have to do with the way that I work? Look, let me give you an analogy to help you think about your work wherever you're at and whatever you do in a different way because of the gospel. Just as a human family is an institution weighed down by sin and brokenness, right? And needs, to be, needs our work to make it whole, right? Would anybody argue that the gospel has effect on human families? Just as the family's institution weighed down by sin and needs restoration in the gospel, so the city is an institution with its arts and with its business and with its government and with its media and with its academy weighed down by sin and brokenness, which needs work, our work, as Christians to be made whole. Look, we believe that the gospel has a deep, vital, and healthy impact on the arts and on business and on government and on media and on academy of any society. So therefore, one of the things that we're committed to moving forward is to support Christians' engagement with Philadelphia's culture. Helping Christians to work with excellence and distinctiveness and accountability in their professions. God's will being done in the way that they show excellence, in the way that they show distinctiveness, in the way that they show accountability. Look, I know that this is hard and we don't have time to unpack it now. You probably haven't heard that from churches before, but it's important. And so in the uh, winter, after Christmas is done and the new year becomes, we're going to spend a whole time in our home meetings just on the gospel and your work. And the corresponding reading that we'll do along with that will be every good endeavor. I think it's going to be important. I think it's going to be eye-opening. And we're going to see ways that our faith means uh, different things living in the city than we have found so far. So we need that. But we also need, what else do we need? We need God giving you good things by which to live every day, each day. Provision. We need provision. We need that of God's free gift, we may receive competent portions of the good things in this life and enjoy his blessing with them. Lewis was so great with these kinds of concepts of putting... putting, um, illustration to them. One of the things that he said is, look, it's like the light beam, the sun beam itself points back to the greater light, the sun. So also a good meal points back to the great feast that we'll have one day and its founder, enjoying him in these things that point back to him, which he lovingly provides. It's an important part of what you need. God giving you good things, provision. You also need, Jesus says, God forgiving your debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. What does that mean? It means grace-based. Grace-based, in other words, costly. Grace-based forgiveness as a way of life. As a way of life. 
that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all of our sins, which we are rather encouraged to ask for. And because of his grace, we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. I'll never forget, and we, uh, some of the leadership and I were, were wrestling with uh, one of the early sermons of Dr. Keller on this. And he, he preached on 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 15. And at the beginning of summer, there was a controversy that came up among a group of in our midst. And so we were talking about strong faith and what that looked like and weak faith and what that looked like and what should relationship look when two parties who are strong and weak come together. And Dr. Keller said this, the strong, verse 1 of chapter uh, Romans 15, Paul uses the term we who are strong, and it includes himself in that core category to some degree. And the strong are people with knowledge. We know that the idol is nothing at all, he says in verse 4. So the strong had knowledge. The strong were people who were not superstitious, and they were not legalistic. They were temperamentally flexible and more well-informed theologically, and they didn't mind ambiguity. In spite of that fact that Paul calls the weak Christians the weak Christians, both in 1 Corinthians 8 and in Romans 15, both places are actually a criticism of the strong. They're not bearing with the weak. That means they're not being patient with the weak. In verse 7, they're not accepting the weak. It's obvious that moralistic people are intolerant, but there's another way that broad-minded people can be intolerant too. They're intolerant of intolerant people. They are self-righteous only about self-righteous people. They are judgmental, only of judgmental people. What's actually happening is that neither side is really accepting the other. Neither side is really relating to the other. Neither side is really respecting the other. And there's all kind of conflict and disunity. Do you see how that's a counterfeit? Old-minded moralistic people, narrow-minded moralistic people, broad-minded relativistic people, But Jesus is saying, because the grace we are enabled, because of the grace he's given us, we are enabled to forgive those who irk us the most from the heart. Those who trespass against us. And he goes on to say, what else do you need? You need God not to lead you into temptation. You need personal holiness. You need no entering into temptation. Did you know that you were to pray for that? And we talk a lot about the brokenness and the sinfulness and the weightiness and how we're not yet there. We're not yet where God is bringing us. But there's an already. Did you know that there's an already where his Holy Spirit is transforming you even now when you believe in the work of Jesus on your behalf? And so you're to pray that God would either keep you, he would keep you from being tempted from sin. In other words, not entering in. The temptation comes, you say, nope, I'm not, I don't even want to countenance that. I know that Jesus is my all in all. I don't need that. So it's either that you're praying for God would keep you from temptation like that, or the second thing is that God was to deliver you from the evil one, that God would support you and deliver you and me when we are tempted. It's going to happen. You're going you're to get tempted and you're going to enter into it. Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against uh, Satan Devices uh, has some great ways of dealing with this kind of thing and temptation. And you can get it on Google Books. You just read it. It's an old document. It's a public domain document, so you can read it. But let me give you a shorthand version of some of the things you need to know about where temptation happens and what it's like. This is where God is to, you're asked God's deliverance from, right? So you've entered in, 
And then what happens after you entered in? Entering in means that you found some identification with the thing that's attracted to you. There's something that you identify. It might be quick and momentary, and you might still sort of slap it down. It might be more like, here comes the temptation. You might get like, huh, oh, no, I'm, you know, I don't want any part of that. But that was entering into temptation. And then what happens is you begin to argue with it instead of against it. It begins to have shaping power through the way that you think about it, the way that your mind wraps around it. You begin to argue with it. It's like a a criminal at your door, pounding at your door to come in and hurt you. And you open the door and say, sit down at the table. Let's reason this out. And the problem is that you've been in danger. uh, There was a sad story of a, um, a student over in West Philly. And uh, a guy with a gun came up, young kid came up with him with a gun and said, give me your wallet. And the guy said, come on, I've got five bucks in my wallet. I'm a student. You're not going to shoot me because I've got five bucks in my wallet. You're not going to shoot me. And the guy shot him in the stomach and took his wallet and his five bucks. And that kid is permanently disabled for life because the bullet hit his spine. He's in a wheelchair. The point is, is that you can't argue with instead of against sin. You can't do it. So not only, you need to pray for God's deliverance. Stop doing that. But you'll need God's deliverance to help you. Right? So it's arguing against, with instead of against. It's also being under accusation. Let's say that you enter in, you've argued with instead of against, and then you do it. You do the thing that you know you shouldn't do. And you're weighed down with it. And your conscience is bothering you. And then comes the thought, and you call yourself a Christian. You see what happens. Your attention is directed to your effort and not Jesus. And you're under accusation. And you need the help of other Christians to help you to see that. You need to begin to recognize Jesus' voice and the way he would speak to you. You need the way that he speaks to you. You need his deliverance when things like this happen. And then there's, after accusation, there's just spiraling down. You're caught. Galatians 6.1 says that when that you need somebody spiritual to be able to restore you because you're just spiraling out of control. Do you see the level that we need God's deliverance for? So pray that he doesn't lead you into temptation. Don't enter in. But when you find yourself in there, involve God because you need him. You need his deliverance. You know, the Lord's Prayer says, deliver us from evil. It's genitive. What it means is of the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one is what the actual translation is. There is somebody in this world who does not want you to succeed in your faith in the gospel. But there is one who asks us to take heart because he's overcome the world, and you can trust in him. So, the Lord's Prayer, verses 9 through 13, is a model for how to pray with God as our Father, knowing what we need. God as our Father, knowing what we need. Wow, right? There's a ton there. There's so much of the kind of prayer that Jesus teaches about. How on earth are we going to be able to pray like that? It's through the great exchange. It's through the great exchange of the gospel. You know that Jesus, the perfect son, was cast out as son so that you could be brought into God's family. Jesus' purpose was to be undone by the Father's wrath so that you could be remade, rehumanized by the Father's presence without any condemnation. Jesus, the undying, eternal one, 
was subject to death so that you could have the security and permanence of his new life that can never be taken away from you because it's in his hands and his strength. Jesus' work was to be treated as a rebellious enemy and put to death so that you could be treated as a loyal friend flourishing in the work of God's will for your life and the good things he's prepared in advance for you to do. Jesus went without provision and was cursed on the cross so that you could be provided for and enjoy God's blessing. Jesus was not forgiven on the cross so that you could be forgiven and then have grace to forgive others. Jesus was led into the desert to be tempted so that you could lead, be led away from temptation. Jesus was delivered into Satan's hand for a time so that you could be delivered from his hand for all time. Prayer begins with your forgiveness of others and their trespasses because of the great forgiveness of your heavenly Father for your trespasses against him. And that's only found in the mighty one who took the fall so that you could rise up and be brought into his presence as a loved one and called friend and family and have hope beyond what you see and experience here. So when you pray, friends, with Jesus, I beg you, don't pray hypocritically and don't pray with emptiness. When you pray, pray asking for what God your Father knows you need because you have an elder brother who went to bat for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we marvel at the, at the glory of your work through the person of your Son, Lord Jesus. And now we are comforted by your Holy Spirit, testifying to our hearts that these things are true. And if we have questions in our heart and we're not sure if that's true, we ask that you would make us alive and to know it through and through. Father, bring us the miraculous work of your Spirit, knowing what we need before we pray, and engaging us as we do, as your children, and as your friends, and as members and heirs of your kingdom, along with you, Lord Jesus. What an embarrassment of riches. We wish to live in light of the truth of who you're making us to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen.